SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Between my shoulder blades, that's where I carry all my tension. She's tense. I just found out what calamari means. <laughs> After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello, welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. Actually, I'm going to go by uh, Thermatite, which is a mineral, and that is my pun name. And I was going to say Matthew Quarrygi. Or I could just say Quarrygi. <laughs> um, regrettably, not everyone's name crosses over well with a Flintstones pun. No, and this time we're talking about Flintstones, Fever Rock, Vegas. This is the, the second and so far final film in this uh, series directed by Brian Levant same as the original produced by Bruce Cohen written by Deborah Kaplan Harry, Harry Alfont Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. based on the Flintstones by William Hanna Joseph Barbera starring Mark Addy Stephen Baldwin Kristen Johnson Jane Krakowski and Alan Cumming and Harvey Corbin and Joan Collins music by David Newman cinematography Jamie Anderson edited by Kent Beta um this came out in 2000, so six years after the original. See, uh, you see Phantom Menace came out, and the producers of the Flintstones took one look at the Phantom Menace and said, I want to make Star Wars prequel money! I think you're probably right. And uh, off a budget of $83 million, made $59 million worldwide. So when you factor in marketing and stuff, that's a and you know what's, And you know what's funny? This isn't a... This isn't a great movie. No. It's it's it it's good. Like I I find this to be sort of it's it hits that that exact middle of good where it's it's like just slightly above mediocre and yet like this is this is a movie that I don't think should have bombed and yet everything that you see about this movie in the run up to its release makes it look shitty. And I think, like, it looks like a shitty movie, and I think that's why it bombed. <coughs> I think, too, the, the title, Viva Rock Vegas, just sounds tired. Yeah, I mean, <coughs> it is also a thing, like, do, do we want to know how these characters got together? Like, is that is that going to be satisfying? Because there is, well, there is yeah. something, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but there is something so perfect about the Fred, Wilma, Barney, Betty dynamic that when you spend the first half of this movie without that dynamic being in place, it is kind of off-putting. Right. It, um... That is all good points. Uh, let's see, where am I here? Oh, so, okay. So, where, where, how did you first hear about this film? Thank you. Um, still waking up here. Uh, Flintstones. I, I almost saw this in the theater, but the mark, even the marketing for this was bad. I, I do like the movie poster. I think that's pretty good. But I think maybe the Great Kazoo is what turned me off. I almost saw it just because I like Alan Cumming. But 
Well, they kind of, as I recall, they kind of downplayed that Gazoo was even in this film only because while Gazoo is a very memorable part of the Flintstones, I find that he tends to be reviled by a lot of people. You know, the Gazoo is the original Jump the Shark. <laughs> he He's the cousin Oliver and Scrappy-Doo of the Flintstones. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the where where I was so in uh, in ninety eight uh, I think it was uh, there so there used to back back when I was in my brief flirtation with shock jocks there was this one shock jock I listened to uh, Man Cow host of Man Cow in the mornings and apparently yes, yeah. he's friends with uh, he's friends with Stephen Baldwin and he just like called Stephen Baldwin to have someone to talk to in the middle of the show. And, like, halfway through the phone call, he's like, oh, hey, by the way, what you working on now? And he goes, oh, I'm working on a new movie, uh, Flintstones, Viva Rock Vegas. And he says, what the fuck is that? He's like, I don't <laughs> know, and I don't really know how to describe it. And that's the first time I heard about this. Huh. Like, so, by the, and I don't know how long this movie was in development, but by the time it came out in 2000, it felt to me like something that had been in development hell for a long time. That, yeah, that could be. Because um, the first was a huge success, as we mentioned last week, and uh, I think they were hot to try it on a sequel, but also, I mean, doing this live action compared to doing it as a cartoon, it's so much more expensive live action to build the sets. I, I will say, I do like in this movie they use practical sets a lot, which um, oh, yeah. I was sort of surprised by, because this being the late 90s, you think that this is the start of the push of everything to being done against a green screen. Um it's very sparing use of CGI. Yeah, again, like the first film, mainly for Dino. Um, like, even the great Alan Cummings is the great gazoo. It's not a CGI great gazoo. It's him in a great gazoo costume, and they use digital trickery to make his head really, really, really big. Right. Um, so, I mean, this could have been called, like, When Fred Meets Wilma. This is about how Fred and Barney meet Wilma and Betty. And, of course, as you can imagine from the title... At one point, they go into Rock Vegas, although that is far too late in the film for my liking. I, I timed it. They go to Rock Vegas in the dead center of the film. 45 minutes came before it, and 45 minutes come after it. It feels like it's towards the end, and I'm not sure why. It, I just felt it was story drags a bit. But, um, yeah, so that's the high point of the movie. Not much of a plot going on here. Let's talk about the cast. Mark Addy, who people might know the best from um, Game of Thrones Season 1. He was the, the king that gets killed. He also was in the, the Fat Guy in the Full Monty. He was also... He, uh, shortly after this, had his own sitcom. Oh, crud. Like that, that's where I knew him from. But I think he got the sitcom after this movie. But he's a British actor, but he's... He's good at Fred Flintstone. He he plays. He's doing much more of a Fred Flintstone impression than John Goodman did, but it but it works. I believe him as a young Fred Flintstone. Yeah, he was on a sitcom for four seasons on CBS called Still Standing. That's the one. Never seen it, um, but he's he's British. Uh, but he his Fred Flintstone sounds more like uh, more like the cartoon I think than John Goodman did. Oh yeah, I mean he, all the way he's, through. 
he's not just doing that voice when he's getting emotional. He has it he has it playing throughout the entire film. And actually, he's so good. I kind of wish he would do a Jackie Gleason biopic. He he has Gleason's mm. patter and mannerisms down flat. There there are turns that he does in this movie that are much more Jack Gleason from the Honeymooners than they are Fred Flintstone from the Flintstones. I've heard Jackie Gleason was a very difficult person on set. And a kind oh, of no, I'm sure he is. Uh, there's an infamous story. Be good. There's an infamous story how Jackie Gleason tried to get an elephant fired from a movie. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. The uh, story. So the story. The story goes. You know, because again, he has a rep- reputation for being a perfectionist and being difficult. And there was, for whatever reason, animals were involved in the movie. I don't remember which one it was, but there was this elephant. And he started. He kept going to the director. You got to fire this elephant. I'm not going to work with this elephant. You got to fire this elephant. Elephant. And finally, the director's like, "Okay, Jackie, why do we need to fire this elephant?" And Jackie leaves it with a full straight face. Said, "That elephant's not funny." Huh. <laughs> like Jeez. it was an acting thing. <laughs> yeah. And no wow. one was sure whether he was serious or whether he was just fucking around with the director. Oh, that could be too. Sure. Um, but then we got Stephen Baldwin as Barney Rubble. Who's better than I, you would think based on the casting. Because um, Stephen Baldwin, you know, Alec Baldwin is the most famous of the Baldwins and his brothers has had uh, various successes. I, I think, you know, Stephen Baldwin is probably the second most successful Baldwin, if I may be so bold, because he was in uh, The Usual Suspects. Oh, that's true. And he's actually, he's he's really good in this. Like the first movie, I find the casting in this film to be perfect. Now, I wouldn't have thought Stephen Baldwin is Barney Rubble, but he totally inhabits the role. The only the only thing that doesn't work is that he's taller than Fred. Yeah, that's weird. And to the point uh, where I almost thought, based on a joke that happens early on in the movie, I thought he was going to end up shrinking uh, and stay small. <laughs> by the end of the movie. That didn't happen, though. No, no, it, it didn't. But, um... Yeah, I keep on... There's one of the Baldwins that lives over here in Oregon, but it's not Stephen Baldwin. I think it's Billy Baldwin. Huh. But the, the funniest thing I, uh, the story I know about Stephen Baldwin is in 2004, he directed Living It, a Christian-themed skateboarding DVD. Hmm. Um, actually shot here in Portland, Oregon. And, uh... He was promoting it on the the Atlanta Alternative um, Station 99X. I mean, that's a real 90s radio station name, isn't it? We and, had a uh, 96X in my hometown of Northern Virginia, yeah. so you are if correct. It had an X, if, if it had an X in it, it was probably a single X. It was probably from the 90s. But um, he, uh, the people at 99X had a really good in-studio band that would do like song, like commercial parodies. Cool. And they, they made, said, oh, you know, for this, you're living at tape, we made a, a song, and, you know, maybe you can use it to help promote your thing. And Stephen Baldwin was excited about it. But it was a goof. It was this kind of oh, heavy no. metal guitar thing, and the lyrics uh, were like, uh, skating for Christ, skating for Christ with Stephen Baldwin. And Stephen Baldwin <laughs> was, immediately became furious and was really pissy through the rest of the interview, and I think left. Oh. But it was worth it for that reaction. Um but yeah, Stephen Baldwin uh, is, is is good as Barney. You mentioned he's a bit too tall. That is true. One um, that I don't think really works is Kristen Johnston from Third Rock or the Sun fame as Wilma. 
I overall I like her, but I think the reason I like her is that I I like Kristen uh, Kristen Johnson. She has amazing comedy chops, and like she she's one of those people where I'm shocked she isn't in more things. And, yeah, and, you know she she really really strains against the confines of the Wilma role. Certainly, like she she has she has such brilliant comedic timing and such great prem uh, like comedic presence, like she. She should be more of a force for comedy in this film. And uh, I was surprised watching this to find a very young Jane Krakowski. Jane Krakowski as Betty. I know. I totally forgotten she was in this. She is so good on Thirty Rock and so good on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And she's also she's also very good in this. Like is she. The, the sort of, she tends to play characters that are very full of herself, but if you take that away from her usual performance, you get Betty Rubble, or in this case, Betty O'Shale. So I, it is strange I really seeing her, her with the black hair. Yeah, that also throws you off. I can't tell mm. if that's a dye job or a wig. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Joan Collins played Pearl Slaghoople. This was played by Elizabeth Taylor in the first film. And, oh, Joan um, Collins from Dynasty is probably the perfect recasting of this role. It isn't. They give her more to do in this. Um, in a role that's very similar to the Kyle MacLachlan character, but it's a different character, you get Thomas Gibson as Chip Rockefeller. Yeah, because you always have some sort of crooked developer in these movies. Who also is known as Greg on Dharma and Greg. Um, and it's just... Uh, Yeah, I don't know. He, he's not that good. It's, it's just kind of flat. There's not much for his character. He, he doesn't hit the heights of Kyle MacLachlan, but also he doesn't he doesn't get that much to do, other than be an asshole. Like in many in many ways, I kind of wish they had just done straight up snobs versus slobs and just let yeah. him be the snobby villain rather than this guy who's in debt to the caveman mafia. You also have um, in an amazing dual role, Alan Cumming, friend of the show. Yeah, um, we we talked about his performances most pretty recently with Son of the Mask as <laughs> Loki, and in here he plays the Great Kazoo, who um, is okay. I really like him as Mick Jagged, though. I take a movie about that character because he has a false nose. They do some extension to his chin, and, and he his just nails the lip. Yeah, he nails the accent and the mannerisms. I know he's a perfect Mick Jagger parody that he does, and and in both roles he's under just enough makeup that he's he's hard to recognize. And as the Great Kazoo, he, um, it's a good imitation I think, but he he does a good job of um, making it appropriate for children. I think it feels like something from a kids' cartoon. Like he's on he's on he's on message here. Um, and he has those cartoon proportions. <laughs> yes, with the nose. Which, you, you would have, otherwise it wouldn't work. Um, Harvey Corbin, who was the voice of the Dick Bird and also voiced the Gazoo in the original cartoon, he um, voiced the Dick Bird in the first movie. Uh, he plays Wilma's, Wilma's father, father, Colonel Slaghoople. And it's nice to see him on camera, although Harvey Corbin's very old at this point. He's unrecognizable in this role, and and they have they have yeah. him playing this like doddering old man, uh, and it's I kind of kept going back and forth in that performance because on the, on the one hand. I do, like, it's it's a very old-timey comedy thing, this doddering old man performance, but it's also one of those things that are, oh, 
he probably has like enhanced advanced senility or Alzheimer's. I think you're um, right, unfortunately. So um, like so sometimes and, it really works and sometimes I only feel sort of sad for, for uh his the character and his family. It's, well, it's I mean, a it is, weird position to be I've in. I've had a family member with um Alzheimer's and I did too. It, it's just sad how quickly it can change someone's personality, how much it can just sort of deteriorate their condition. Like five years before this he was in Dracula Dead and Loving It. The Mel Brooks movie as oh, Dr. Right. Sword. And he was really like lively and on his game there. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's bittersweet seeing him in here. Um, this was his last on-camera performance. However, his last voiceover performance was reprising his role as the Great Pazoo in the PlayStation game The Flintstones Bedrock Bowling. Huh. Also odd, that Flint... It makes me want to track down the game because uh, it's supposed to be a bad game, but... Uh, <laughs> It is the last time Henry Corden voices Fred Flintstone. Wow. And he voiced Fred Flintstone, uh, he was the second Fred Flintstone after for, Alan Reed died in seven decades. Yeah, yeah, so really quite something. I mean, to have your last Flintstones gig be a bowling video game is, I guess a paycheck's a paycheck, but... <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Um... We also get Mel Blanc's archived voice returning as Puppy Dino. Which is nice. That's fine. I also it's like that good... William Hanna and Joe Barbera, again, have cameos in this film. I find that, like, very touching. It's nice. Um, I mean, those, the, the, the amount of work those men produced, animation quality notwithstanding, is, is um, whole generations of children grew up on their stuff. Oh, yeah. And, and not to mention, you know, it was... it. Well, I... It was the animation that was... Was it actually animated in the States? Uh, I... Starting out, I I believe it was. I don't think it was... Eventually. It wasn't... I don't think... It wasn't until later that they... That a lot of the... The overall out animation and in-betweening was being outsourced. But the I, only I, one animation studio I know that didn't really outsource their stuff, but their stuff looked really... Looked like worse than Hanna-Barbera was Filmation. Oh, Film Elf. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you want to see animation... That makes Deke's animation look good. You go to Filmation. I think Deke had some okay stuff, but yeah, well, the, Filmation the stuff is that they, the stuff that they brought in, like Inspector Gadget. Inspector Gadget was great. Anything they produced in house, I see, uh, was very like like the Bill and Ted animated series. Very, oh boy. very low quality. Yeah, I think they animate on sixes. Um, <laughs> that's a animation terminology. Deep cut. Yep, uh, Flintstones, Viva Rock Vegas. Let's. Start with the story. Um, so this is a prequel, as we mentioned. And I think it's odd, much like the first Flintstones movie, it starts with Fred and Barney taking a test. Well, no, even before that, though, we get a weird a weird preamble because we open with the Universal Pictures logo. Yeah. Then it pulls out, and like, you th okay, we're ready for the Flintstones, but then we see a starship. And the starship's full of gazoos, and it's gazoo getting chewed out and told that he's going to be given a shitty assignment going to Earth to to uh, research the mating and courtship habits of the local species, the humans. And this is when it gets kind of meta, because, like, Gazoo's first line is, I say, did anyone else notice those giant letters floating around the planet? Referencing the logo from the film, which can still be seen through the viewplate. Uh, I think, uh, you're right, my mistake, uh, but what a horrible way to start a Flintstones film. I'm sorry. Like, I know Great Gazoo... <laughs> You, as he said, you want to start right in bedrock, and then maybe you have them, um, I don't know, drinking 
beers or doing bowling, and then you pan up to the sky, and then you go to the spaceship, and have that be the second scene. It's strange, but, yeah, they're, they're using the Great Gazoo <laughs> to, to bookend this film. It's like, hey, Flintstone fans, we're going to kick you in the balls right at the beginning. It's coming. <laughs> it's, it's like... It's like opening a Scooby-Doo movie with an extreme close-up of Scrappy-Doo. <laughs> you, you say that, but that could happen when Scooby comes out in 2020. If Scooby doesn't have Scrappy in it, I'll be very surprised. <laughs> but yeah, it's weird. So yeah, he gets, he gets fired to Earth, and then, yeah, we go to uh, Fred and Barney taking their aptitude test because they're trying to get jobs at the uh, gravel pit, which is just opening up. And one thing that I thought was kind of... <laughs> funny is that part of their aptitude test is Fred has to operate this crane simulator yes. and it's a giant puppet dinosaur. But it's a cheap looking puppet. I found that at first off-putting but then charming. It sort of grew on me. Like it's but so bad looking. I felt like it needed a little extra though. Like it needed to be a different dinosaur disguised as a brontosaurus which doesn't exist. Or like we should have seen like monkeys inside operating the internal workings. But, but it starts with, like, some really old comedy premises, because it's Fred and Barney, and Fred's talking about how he has this perfect plan to study for the aptitude test, about how rather oh, than yeah, cramming all yeah. night, he's going to get a full night's sleep, and then do a little refresher in the morning, so all the info's fresh in his mind, and then Barney's like, yeah, but Fred, the test is today. And I like that. That's a good cheesy joke like you would actually have on the Flintstones. And it establishes their characters perfectly. Mm-hmm. No, good good start to the film. Um, and, you know, they have a good repartee. In fact, I would even argue, even though I like this movie less than the first one, the, um, the um, rhythm between Mark Addy and Stephen Baldwin, I think, is better than what you have between John Goodman and Rick Moranis. You know, I can... Yeah, the rhythm... Definitely, and I don't know if that's because they they established a good rhythm on set. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's them. I don't know if that's the direction. I but that comes through so well in this. Yeah. Um, but then we also have to establish uh, Wilma. And, yes. and as and as we know from the original series. Uh, you know, Wilma comes from money. She's the daughter. She's the youngest daughter of the affluent Slaghoople family, uh, and so it opens with her older sister is getting married, and they're having a uh, a wedding shower, uh, and we we see a bunch of puppets introduced as appliances from this wedding shower. All of them will be reused extensively throughout this film. Right, and it's. But I like that they lean into her coming from money as a plot point in this movie. I think that's something that works. It really makes her different from Fred and Barney. But but we you know we 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 really buy it though because we we see like I when, when her family's introduced in this scene, you can totally understand why she would want to leave this environment and just kind of bite into the raw red steak that is life. Yeah, I mean, even her going to the, uh, you know, in the first film, McDonald's was the tie-in, and this one is Burger King. Um, Which comes into the film as Bronto King, if I recall correctly. That's right, and uh, but she's excited to go into town for a burger, is considered, you know, forbidden fruit. Uh, it's nice Wilma and Betty have more to do in this than they did in the first film. Oh, very true, I like that. Oh, and also, the the 
animal appliances get better lines. Like, even during this scene, the vacuum cleaner, the juicer, and the garbage disposal have this whole three-way conversation about the wedding. And the juicer's like, oh, man, I, I wouldn't give this wedding six months. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Um, so, so I and I know that it probably is a cost-cutting measure that we see all these appliances come in in later scenes in different environments, but I like to imagine that Wilma's sister just ter- returned all these to the store for cash. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be out of the question. <laughs> but it's pretty cool, and I do, and I do like you know, I do like Wilma's uh, f- first meeting Betty, who's working as a roller skating waitress, at, which used to be a thing uh, in the states. And it is kind of neat, like Betty thinking that Wilma's caveless, and and you know, they, like they kind of becoming fast friends. It's really touching. Mm. And again, the food looks great. I want to eat one of those giant burgers. Yes, they keep that sort of over-the-top look of the food from the show. And that it's the place where the uh, meat cute happens, as Roger Ebert phrased it, is, <laughs> it, is fitting. Fred and Barney like to eat. And they can't, they're, they don't have a lot of money and they're young, so where do they go? They go to the fast food place. And um, and that they get set up on double dates. I, I found that my, maybe my favorite scene in the film. I thought it was very charming, well set up. Well, also it's cool that Betty takes the initiative because Fred is so right. so stunned by Betty home and, home and home 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 beauty, and so and that he's just kind of speechless. And Betty's like, "Oh, you want to go on a date?" And like Betty organizes the whole thing. And, uh, like and, I, re- I really like her as this like go getter type. And, and that sets up something that I wish the movie did more with, is that in the initial double date, uh, Fred is going out with Betty and Barney is going out with Wilma. I wish they had done more with that dynamic. I agree. But, I think that's, uh, yeah, that, that would have been, you could have but, more satire there. And instead, they sort of make the switch to the couples we expect pretty, pretty early on. yeah, Because they go to a, they have a, a date set at an amusement park. Yeah, and it's a wonderfully rendered amusement park. The the dinosaur roller coaster is fantastic. The merry-go-round made of seashells and ribs is fantastic. The shooting gallery is fantastic. Shooting gallery, I liked. Yeah, it really it's, is uh, great. It's good, and you know, perhaps I think the the stuff going on in the um, amusement park is more interesting than what we see when we get to Rock Vegas. Well, it's it's certainly like a, it's a better use of the environment, and we get a lot of good good gags. And the other, oh god, something else I really love in that whole thing. Well, well, actually, there's a Jurassic Park joke because we're on the mm-hmm. on the way. Like as they're entering, there's a sign that says "Coming soon, Jurassic Park: The Ride," and he's like, "Oh, but who's gonna pay to see dinosaurs? They're everywhere." Yeah. And, and that was actually an in joke because at the time there was a Jurassic Park ride in development at Universal Studios that was notoriously delayed because they were having so many problems with the animatronics. And it had a safety issue in which someone died on the ride, unfortunately. Oh, wow, I did not know that. So so yeah. that's kind of, that's a little inside baseball joke snuck into this movie. But uh, the other thing I like is, you know, we talked about how they, they, they worked hard to reproduce uh, Flintstone's bowling scene in the first film. They do it here very successfully where where Fred and Wilmer are bowling and Fred does this whole twinkle toes move. He gets a 7-10 split and he does this move where he throws the bowling ball and the bowling ball cracks in half. 
and knocks over the pins. And as near as I can tell, that was a practical effect. Wow. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good gag. It's an effective gag. It, um, I think the beginning of this film does stuff right. It's just, there's, overall, it's, there's such a focus on this romance between the characters and all the, the drama between Wilma and her mother. That, uh, my wife was watching me watch some of this on the phone in bed, and she said, uh, Matt, what are you watching a soap opera for? <laughs> and then I mentioned it was this Flintstones movie. She's like, they didn't make another Flintstones. I was like, oh no, they did. And then when she saw it was Grant Kukowski, she started to watch some of it. Huh. Um, no, well, she the, was doing other stuff. The, the soap opera would be General Rockspittle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, oh, as the stone get, turns. But then we also get, you know, Fred and Barney meeting the Great Gazoo, because, you know, they're talking about how, you know, things, you know, things don't just hit you, and, you know, the, the space pod crashes. They release the Great Gazoo. And one thing that I do like is how they undercut the premise of the Great Gazoo, because the big thing in the original series is the Gazoo had all these cosmic powers, and so many of the Great Gazoo episodes were about him granting a wish from Fred and Barney that goes completely wrong. Um, and so it's like, oh, hey, I bet you grant us wishes, right? I mean, we let you out of the thing. Now you gotta grant us wishes. And he goes, no, I don't grant wishes. I'm not a bloody genie. And I love how smartly condescending okay. he is to Fred and Barney. It does show, though, that um, I just think the whole character of the Great Gazoo isn't needed for this movie. You could have the same story and not have the Gazoo in it and not lose much of anything at all. Yeah, you'd only lose the Gazoo condescending comedy. And I guess because that is the thing, because I can totally get why they don't want to they don't want to use the Gazoo granting wishes because that is kind that is lazy. Um, but that being said. I, they shouldn't lean into him being an observer of Earth. They need him to take an active hand in this movie at least once. You get, I do think you get a one good Gazoo joke, which is after they find Gazoo, they go back to their apartment. They live in in bunk beds. Oh yeah, in the trailer is very in the trailer, and Gazoo is very eager for them uh, to learn about mating habits. And then he's like, "Go on, get on with it." You know, saying that basically saying that he wants Fred and Barney to have sex in front of them. He wants to watch him fuck, yeah. He wants to watch him fuck, and I think I was surprised they got away with that. Really, they well, they cover it up pretty quickly. It's more of a joke for adults than for kids. But I'm like, well, wow, that's I want I want to see a movie about that. Well, because that's the other thing is like you know they so yeah we have this alien that wants to watch humans fuck. That's his job. But when yeah. that when when the gazoo appears in the trailer. It scares Barney, and so Barney falls off the top bunk and lands on top of Fred behind him. And, like, it really... It's a compromising when, position. When, yeah, when it starts, it's like, oh, that's a funny bit of choreography, but as you lean into it, it's like, okay, we get it, anal sex. Right. And uh, and these kind of gay panic... I thought it was a funny joke, but these sort of gay panic jokes were everywhere in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, Lord, yeah. Think of all the American Pie movie stuff. Um, yeah, it... But I was surprised to see that joke, and I wouldn't have minded. Um, I mean, a movie about Fred and Barney falling in love would be interesting, I think. But so, I so you want a a deconstructionist homoerotic retelling of the Flintstones? I'm getting ahead of myself, but yeah, that'll be my my pitch a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but um, and along and along those lines, though, it's not the only joke that may be a bit too risque for this film. What's the other one? Well, so the other one, so in the Rock Vegas scene, there's a scene where a burglar, an alarm goes off, and um, the casino's put on lockdown. Oh, excuse me. 
and uh, oh, what's his name? The uh, Chip Rockefeller comes out and says, someone in this room is a criminal. And a member of Mick Jagged's band, The Stones, just leans over to the woman he's arm in arm with and says, how old did you say you were again? Oh, I missed that one. That's yeah. fucked up. That is. Um, yeah, so you get... Uh, the first movie did this a little bit. You get this more in this about the sort of class warfare between the rich and the poor with... Um, they're going to... Um, Wilma's house for is it a party or something? I'm trying to remember. Well, yeah, like so. So Wilma's so Wilma's been living with Betty and had been working a normal job, and her mother finds her. That's right. It's a gets, secret. Yeah. She kind of gets dragged back into the the life of wealth and affluence. But yeah, her family's having a party to celebrate uh, Colonel Slagcoople's birthday, and so Wilma invites Betty, Fred, and Barney to come to the party, and they're wearing their tuxedos, and Fred. Their relationship has been so successful that Fred is going to... His plan is to propose to Wilma at that party. And he has this ring with, like, a tiny a tiny diamond in it. Although I think a funnier gag would have been if it had been a lump of coal because it hasn't had time to become a diamond yet. Yeah, right. But we, but we get a lot of... Uh, we get a lot of like again of like a lot of fish out of water a lot of snobs versus slobs humor in the scene some of which works some of which doesn't like i love the bit where fred thinks that the valet is trying to steal his car the valet played by john uh, cho of harold and kumar in star trek fame yeah that was a bit of a surprise to see him in this yeah well it's one of well, it's kind of kind of like like cal penn like i just light up when i see him on screen i thought like I guess, how early was this in his career? Pretty early. Let me, um, this, this would have been right before uh, the first Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, wouldn't it? A few years before, I think, yeah, because that was in... Uh, I mean, he would have been... Oh, gee, he would have been like 27 or something at the time. Oh, but, hey, sp- another up-and-comer, uh, Kristen Stewart's in the carnival scene as the girl playing ring toss. Oh, I didn't know that. Um... You know, yeah, this was about four years before Kumar. So, yeah, he was only three years uh, into acting in films at this point. But, yeah, and but it's it's kind of nice. And we do we do get to see... I do like that, that Colonel Slaghoople does love his daughter and, like, isn't, like, as judgmental uh, as Pearl Slaghoople. Uh, and it is, and it's just, it's just, it's, it all, but it all comes to a head because we fought, we get an origin story for Dino where Dino was like one as a prize at the carnival, kind of like a goldfish, but mm-hmm. Dino doesn't want to be away from Fred. So Dino, uh, uproots the tree that he's tied to and runs to the mansion. So when Fred gives up to give his speech where he's going to propose to Wilma, Dino barges in and wrecks the entire dinner. That's right. And it's uh, a scene where everything's knocked over. It's just complete chaos. The the parents are angry. Um, I've I've had dogs that have done things like that before. We were visiting our uh, my in laws, and the uh, the dog. We thought we could let the dog go, and people were eating food casually on the on the couch. And our dog is very food motivated, like scarily oh, yeah. so, and so. It, it it became a scene like that very quickly, and then he managed to hop on a table, hop hop on a, a dinner table, and start going towards the turkey. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, seeing that stuff happening in real life is horrifying. In a movie, it's kind of funny. Here, 
it, it's broad. I don't like Dino that much as a character. I think he's annoying. He gets a little more to do here than in the first one. Although he also kind of quickly vanishes from the film because after, yeah. after all this, um, uh, Chip Rockefeller, sort of as a show of good faith, offers Fred and Wilma, Barney and Betty, an all-expense-paid vacation to his new hotel that he's bankrolling in Rock Vegas. And that's the midpoint of this film where we finally get to Rock Vegas. But, like the first film, the whole reason he's inviting them there is that he wants to use Fred as an unwitting dupe break up his relationship with Wilma so that he can propose to Wilma. Hmm. But then we find out that he's that his casino is rigged and that he owes a lot of money to the caveman mafia and we get Tony Longo as Big Rocco and Danny Woodburn who's a who's a little person who had a recurring role in Seinfeld as one of Kramer's That's best right. friends as Little Rocco. Uh, and I, I like their dynamic. It really reminds me of of uh, of uh, the of the Mobster and Bugsy from uh, the the uh, uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yeah, I could have used more of the mafia stuff. Actually, I thought they would go somewhere with that. And while it drives the plot a little bit, they're not. I would have rather have seen them as like more central villains for my money. Yeah, yeah, it would have, it, it kind of would have been nice because they did have they did have some good comedy between them. So I could have stand standed to see a, a little bit more of that. Um, but we get we get a uh, we get a rec- we get we get a a version of Viva Las Vegas, Viva Rock Vegas, sung by Anne Margaret. Yeah, which is, uh, she, did she sing the original? Uh, well, Elvis sung the original, but Anne Margaret ah, yes, played yes. opposite Elvis in a number of his movies. There you go, that's what I'm thinking of, the Elvis she's, connection. Oh, she's also in the uh, MST3K movie Kitten with a Whip. <laughs> One of her first films. Uh, that That is a great episode, definitely worth checking out. Um, but but yeah, they don't really take advantage of the the Rock Vegas setting. Like I, I wish there were more gags. The only real gag we get, or the stuff with Fred gambling for clams and the and the octopus masseuse voiced by Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah, which is an interesting uh, bit of casting. Um, but I do think an octopus would make a good masseuse. I think that's a one of those things with the animal. Doing the the chore makes sense. Oh no no it ap- it absolutely does. Um, but I don't, yeah so so they they don't quite use it. Although this does dig into the show's lore because f- it, canonically in the Flintstones Fred does have a gambling problem. There's, I didn't know that really. Yeah, there's a, there's a really good episode about that where it's even in their background that. Fred used to be a habitual gambler until he married Wilma, and Wilma kind of is always trying to keep him from getting into gambling, and that he has this compulsion, like, the the running gag of that episode, which I'm shocked didn't get reused here, is that if somebody uses the word bet around Fred, Fred just goes bet, 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 and does, like, this chicken noise saying the word bet, and then just throws money at whatever it is and makes a wager. Hmm. But that is, but that is, yeah. So Fred is gambling because he wants to make money to to buy a better engagement ring for Wilma, and but the, it turns out the only reason he's winning, uh, and Gazoo even points this out, the casino is rigging the game so that he wins. Then they then extend to him a line of credit. Then they rig the game so he loses, and he loses so much that he owes uh, Chip Rockefeller a million dollars. That's a lot. And he's he's financially ruined. He's penniless. You know, he throws his last clam away, 
And some, and, and and again, this is all so that Cliff or Chip can marry Wilma and then get access to the Slag Hoople fortune and use that fortune to pay back the Rocco brothers. Needlessly complicated. Yeah, like like the first movie, it gets too complicated. Also, it's. Uh, it just seems like a lot of the plot gets dumped in this Vegas part. Like, if you get sort of the, the stuff of the meeting in the first half and the second half. It feels like two different movies a bit put back to back. Yeah, it's like we got a first act, a second act, then a second act from a different movie, and then a third act from a different movie. Because they're trying to do the setup that he stole the pearls, the, her necklace, which she got yeah, from the mother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wilma had gotten a gift of this of her iconic pearl necklace iconic from the necklace. colonel. And, you know, Chip's like, oh, there's been a string of room robberies. We should keep your pearl safe. So she puts it in the, in the, the hotel safe. But then he hides those pearls on Fred's body so that in the scene where the casino goes on lockdown and he says that there's a that there's a this is where we get that scene you know the someone here is a criminal uh, and we got that joke that we alluded to what's kind of interesting is he's trying to get the accusations directed towards Fred but everyone in the hotel has committed some sort of petty crime and confesses it although uh, John Dugan, who played a waiter in the first film, he gets a speaking part in this film where during this whole during this whole accusation scene, he says, I have been secretly poisoning the dinosaur's water supply. Within a few decades, the entire dinosaur species will be extinct. And this is a running gag. We have this guy trying to kill off the dinosaurs and nobody cares. I liked it as a gag. I, I wish it would have had a payoff at the end. Maybe that would have been too grim. Well, yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, but the pearls get found on Fred and everything, and Fred and Barney get thrown in jail, uh, and this is when the Great Gazoo sort of does something, where the Great Gazoo appears in jail and reveals to the doesn't even magic them out. He just reveals to them that you know I witnessed I witnessed Chip Rockefeller confessing to this crime, so you've been you've been set up. That's kind of the extent of it. Although I do like Alan Cummings as the Great Gazoo crying. You oh, think I it works better than that towards the end. You think it gets better than him getting emotional? Oh, okay. Um, Although we've barely talked about uh, Alan Cummings as Mick Jagged of the Stones. Yeah, why don't why don't we go into that? So we we set up that in Rock Vegas, Mick Jagged is playing, who's a big celebrity, um, and he it's Alan Cumming doing a Mick Jagger impersonation. But it it's such a good makeup job on him, and his voice is so good. I didn't even recognize it was Alan Cumming. Well, he even Until does the lips. He even, even though, does the classic Mick Jagger dance and is talking about how much he should or should not stick his butt out when he struts. And uh, he gets more involved with the plot because Barney is going to gets. Um, they're trying to get Barney distracted so they can set up Fred with the the theft or whatever. And uh, Barney is notified about a uh, buffet well, by a very sexy waitress. Well, well, Chip Rockefeller's on-again, off-again girlfriend slash accomplished slash floozy Roxy, um, played by uh, Alex Menezes, is sent, like, she is sent, presumably, to seduce Barney, but Barney is so sort of innocent and feckless, he can't be seduced, so she just distracts him with an all-you-can-eat buffet. But but that does lead to a scene where it looks like he's, it looks like he's groping her, uh, and Betty sees this and breaks up with him, and she becomes a Mick Jagged groupie. 
Uh, so that's how we kind of get Mick Jagged involved. And I love that Mick Jagged wears this like Union Jack fur coat thing. Which yeah. would imply that somewhere there's a there's a Great Britain in this world, and that they've successfully bred a water buffalo to have that exact pattern on its fur. If anyone could do it, I'm sure it would be Alan Cumming. Oh, that man could breed anything. Well, I I like oh. that, and he he came out with a um, he had some friends in the fashion industry and came out with a perfume called Cumming. It's supposed to smell just terrible. <laughs> and it was like all as a joke, but it was a real product, and it had an ad campaign and everything. Yeah. So, some jokes can go too far. <laughs> and I'm just imagining him sort of smirking on the, the print ad for the perfume, or for the cologne. He's very good at smirking. I mean, I, th- I think the first time I saw Alan Cumming was uh, in his not very good role as the one of the Russian hackers in GoldenEye. Oh, yeah. The one where he says, not convincingly, jokes. I like boobs. I give you a clue. It is a found on door of mansion and on the woman. Knockers. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, Borat before Borat, but um, Flintstones, Beaver Rock, Vegas. Yeah, so I mean, he... And I like that Mick Jagged gets a, a good monologue where he says, like, I, I've slept with a, a zillion uh, women of loose morals, but Betty is a woman of loose morals, but also a strong character. Like, he gives a speech justifying why Betty's special to her, and he doesn't want to let her go. And it's kind of accurate, though. <laughs> it is, it is. It's a, it's a well-written scene, and... And, and yeah. I love it, like, when when he and Barty get into a fight over Betty, and they're both thoroughly incompetent at fighting. They just, like, they just, like, keep, like... It's like the most sissy slap fight I've ever seen on film. Uh, a sequence, I, I think the idea is good, but it doesn't quite pull it off, is uh, in the climax, you get, you know, Fred is dejected because he's made to look like he stole Wilma's necklace, and Barney's not in a great place either, and so they go on stage as... Um, well, they're on the one from the, the law, so they, yeah, they disguise yeah. themselves as dancing girls. And this is, and like, it's, I think they don't commit to it enough... Because it is like they like it is kind of fun. Like I love that Fred can't dance, but that Barney can, and that Barney's doing the splits. Yep. And I I, I wish they played more with that dynamic. But did you notice that the song that they are doing the choreographed dance number two is the original Flintstones theme? No, that's yeah, that a was really the, deep cut. Jeez. Yeah, that was the original Flintstones theme before the one the one that we all recognize with the iconic lyrics. How about that? Cool. Um... And then later, at, at the end, we get uh, Fred comes out instead of um, Mick Jagged, and he does a, a musical number. Now, is that a song from the show that he does? or I, I do not recognize that song. I was trying to find out... I was trying to find out what that was from, and I could not... I, I think that's for... That was written for this movie. I don't think it's from the show. And it's well, that's not a like shame because like it's not a funny stones. it's not a funny song. It, I don't. Think well, no, it's, very... it's like a legit pop song. They've written a legit pop song that exists in this movie. Why not do Why not do the uh, the twist? But that's <laughs> that not a back. romantic song, though. It needs to be romantic. Eh. I don't know. Like I, I just don't think it quite worked. And it's like like the dancing sequence. They don't quite commit to it enough. They don't make it showy and tacky enough for a Vegas stage show. Oh yeah, it's it's written by Brian Wilson and uh, Tony Asher. That this isn't love song that he does. Does that mean it was a Beach Boys song? 
Uh, it's not worth looking into, but it's... It, anyway, I don't think... Do you think that part works where he goes and starts um, professing his love in music to Wilma? He, he's a... Yes, but he sings a bit too competently. Got it. Yeah, like I, it should be. I think it should be a bit more gruff. But over, but overall, I I, I like it. You know, and, I, and everything everything kind of gets wrapped up pretty neatly uh, at this point. Chip Rockefeller is ruined. The mafia is presumably going to break his legs as they demonstrate with a Chip Rockefeller doll. Yeah, yeah, at first I, I thought it was a voodoo doll. Like in the first one, where like in the first one where Kyle McLaughlin dies, I think the, I think we are supposed to take it that Chip Rockefeller was immediately killed by the mob the moment the camera stopped rolling. <laughs> uh, right. But then you know, uh, Fred and uh, Fred and uh, Wilma get married. The Great Gazoo cries. You know, we get ah yaba daba do, which I guess you got to do that gag, and then it ends with uh, everybody like. Running down the aisle to a uh, a swinging version of the Flintstones theme. Which, also, should be noted that uh, Mick Jagged does perform Viva Rock Vegas as well. Oh yeah! So that final sort of dance number that is so awkwardly intercut with footage of people dancing, but not in their wedding costumes. I feel like there must have been a full Viva Rock Vegas musical number from earlier in the film that got cut, and they recycled that footage in this climax. Like, there's Could that whole be. thing... The, where... the, the thing I notice is when, when it's them doing the Meet the Flintstones stuff, mm-hmm. it is not the people on the set singing. It's very distracting. And so, and, and if, you, if I was trying to read lips of people in the background, it doesn't quite match up with the vocals either. Like, it's very sloppily cut. It doesn't... If you're going to end a song with a sort of a celebratory reprise of this, you know, one of the best theme songs ever written, and you're in Vegas, for God's sake, make it make it like a James Brown or Rocky Four tacky. Yeah, make it bigger. Oh, but we do get one last cameo. So William, and H- William Hanna and Joseph Barbera do have cameos in this. So the priest that marries uh, Fred and Wilma is John Stevenson, who was a recurring Hanna-Barbera voice actor. He was uh, he was the original voice of Mr. Slate. Wow. That, that, that's always nice when they, they do things like that. Yeah, it, it, it is it is really sweet. And again, like that can only be there either because for the fans or because the people making this movie are fans. Like, that kind of casting does not happen by accident. Exactly. Um... But you know the great gazoo flies towards the camera as the Flintstones uh, drive away in their and their Cadillac, which I cannot think of a rock pun for. Uh, we get we get credits, uh, but and then at the end of the credits, they reuse the same title card stinger from the first film. It's the exact same title card. When in Holly Rock, visits uh, scenic Universal Studios. Yeah, stupid. Um... Yeah, Flintstones and Beaver Rock Vegas. I give it a sequel. No, I think it's there are some okay gags. I think the the first half is better than the second half, and um, everyone's really trying, but it doesn't quite. It's a bit too lethargic. It's too much on the romance. I would have liked more comedy for my liking. At, at the risk of sounding too easy to please, I'm going to give this a mild sequel. Yes, this movie does have some real flaws, but I was I was entertained. This this hits. A 
nice level of good. It 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 does it, it it's not great, but it doesn't waste your time. And and some of the performances, Alan Cummings in particular, are so good. They really need to be appreciated. Hmm. Oh, so in the first film we talked about how they avoided doing an it's a living joke. They do the same thing in this. And and their t- version of trying to do a newer, hipper version of an It's a Living joke. Um, so Chip Rockefeller has this like remote control with a pterodactyl in it that he uses for a few gags. And there's this one scene where out of nowhere, the pterodactyl pokes his head out of the remote and says, you know, a brother's got to have a job. I'm just looking to make some scratch, you dig? That's right. That is such a lame joke. Like that always Lame, feels like a kind of racist. Yeah. Oh yeah, and 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 and, and yeah, racist uh, as well. Um, it's like what 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 is that for? Like that sounds like a that sounds like a lame placeholder version of that joke that made it to the very end. That sounds like a joke from one of those uh, Transformers movies we covered. Oh, skids and mudflap. Yeah, yeah skids and mudflap. Yeah. I guess that's the type. We should just now refer to it whenever we hear that kind of affected voice. That it's the skids and mudflap type. As the S and M type. Yeah. Um, wait, that's something different. <laughs> oh, oh God, that might even be intentional on Michael Bay's part. How dare you, you, you introduce that thought? Well, uh, I'm reminded of a bit of Batman Forever trivia. So remember Drew Barrymore is in that movie? Oh, yeah. Very, very small part. And uh, there are two faces, uh, two women, and they try to seduce Batman. And you have Sugar, who's played by Drew Barrymore, and Spice, who's played by someone else. The more sexy outfit. Um, in the original screenplay, they were written as leather and lace, but that was considered too risque. <laughs> Which, I think Sugar and Spice works better, personally, but... Anyway, that's where, when you said, when I made the S&M joke, that's where my mind went, was Batman, so. And we are part of the Batpod network, so. There you go. Um, for for pitch a sequel, I think what i do would, would be what I was hinting at earlier, is a sort of recontextualization, meta, Flintstone. Um, in fact, it would just be called Viva Rock Vegas What If?, Except for the plot, and it it would start with the scene of uh, the idea is this movie didn't do well, but they had some of the sets, so they needed to refilm it, do something with the sets and the costumes before uh, to save money to do a cheapy sequel. It'd be Viva Rock Vegas, what if? And uh, it would start with the scene of them going to the um, the the Bronto Rock. Bronto King, whatever, restaurant. <laughs> and, it, and it turns out Fred and Barney realize they're not interested in the women. What they really like is each other. You know, it'd be sort of uh, Brokeback Mountain meet the Flintstones. And it would have a very tragic, dark ending. So it's not its not going to be like a, a Torch Rock trilogy starring Harvey <laughs> Firestone. Uh, no, but Harvey Firestone Stone or Steen would, would have a good uh, cameo in there, I think. And it would, it would end with, um, you know, Barney looking at Fred's gravestone as we hear a, a tinkling, soft, dark piano cover. 
We'll have a gay old time. That is such a lame gag to end that on. <laughs> Isn't it? Uh, what's your pitch a sequel? So so my my pitch my pitch a sequel uh, will be uh, will be uh, Flintstones three modern Stone Age trilogy. And the the premise okay. is uh, the premise is so you know the first film you know they got uh, they got uh, their two weeks paid vacation so the idea is that uh, Pebbles you know Pebbles and Bam Bam are, are growing up they're they're uh, they're now like te- they're teenagers uh, and so the Fl- the Flintstones and the Rubbles decide hey let's use our paid vacation and have like a twentieth wedding anniversary or some significant wedding anniversary. And they decide they're gonna go. They're gonna go up to Rock Canada, which is the Flintstones ah. Canada. But while there, they're caught in an avalanche, and they're all frozen inside a glacier. And they're frozen inside that glacier for a long time, a long, long, long time. And they are thawed out in the 21st century by the Jetsons. Hmm. And so the Jetsons feel like, oh, we're responsible for thawing these cave people out. We should take care of them. So the Flintstones move in with the Jetsons since uh, Pebbles and Bam Bam are now teenagers. Bam Bam starts to develop affection for Judy Jetson. Uh, So there's a little romantic triangle there. And again, we just we play with a lot of fish out fish out of water stuff. Uh, You know, uh, Fred and Barney become famous as these like living embodiments of the past and like George tries to become their agent that leads to all sorts of trouble at the uh, Spacely Sprockets um, they want to get a, they they want uh, both Spacely Sprockets and Cogswell Cogs want the Flintstones to be their spokespeople so there's a bidding war between them uh, and everything just kind of goes crazy but in the end you know the Flintstones and the Jetsons both realize the Flintstones really do deserve to be in the past so Elroy being a boy genius uh, builds a time machine and it ends with them uh, sending uh, sending the Flintstones back into the Stone Age and the Flintstones will see themselves frozen and there'll be a, a good little chuckle like, uh, but um, because we need to end on an action set piece it'll turn out that the final component Elroy needs for his time machine is a prototype cog from Cogswell Cogs. So there's a uh, so there's going to be a huge uh, a huge action set piece in the Cogswell Cogs factory with all sorts of warring robotic stuff going on, where they're trying to get that uh, that last cog so they can send the Flintstones back in time. Got it. And because I really wish this had happened, Will Ferrell is going to play George Jetson. Speaking of what, you know there's a Jetsons and WWE crossover as well? I'd heard of such a thing. I have not seen it. Robo-WrestleMania. <laughs> it's called... Why not? Sure. They must be selling, right? I presumably. Um, it's two things that people recognize. Why wouldn't it sell? Well, then have, like, the Flintstones meet Nutella the movie. <laughs> I mean, Nutella the character, not Nutella the product. Or would it just be a jar of Nutella? <laughs> It'd just be a jar of Nutella. And it would just be um, about talking about how delicious Nutella is. And the movie comes with two coupons. And Kobe, Co- Kobe Bryanthrocyte can have a, uh, have a cameo. And, uh... Yeah, I don't know enough about wrestling to improv there. Okay, <laughs> Suplex and scene. Yeah, that fantastic segue. Um, 
what you're watching. I've been uh, watching. Uh, I watched the first episode of the fourth season of a BBC series that I'm trying to catch up on. It is Sherlock. Oh. The fourth uh, season of it came out not that long ago, and it, it's one of those. The BBC doesn't do this often, but it, I guess they did it with like their Miss Marple series or something. But each episode is like 90 minutes long. Yeah, it's like each episode is like a little movie. A little movie, right? A little TV movie. And uh, all the special effects are pretty good in this. And uh, have you seen this Sherlock show at all? Uh, yes, I haven't seen all of it, but I've seen most of it. Yeah, season four um, was just filmed in 2017. I didn't realize it was that recent. They've had such a long gap between the years because um, of how famous uh, Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch are getting. Hmm. So it's tough to do it with their schedules. And... Uh, First episode of season four is is pretty good, I think. It's um, a bit a bit of a downer, but it it does seem like they're starting to have more kind of long form character arcs over the series, which they didn't necessarily have before. So that's sort of interesting to see where they go, especially with Watson. Seems to be more Watson material. Um, so looking forward to to watch more of that, and of course, the Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman are great. Um, a friend of mine, um, a former co-worker of mine, pointed me to a statement Martin Freeman said about Sherlock fans that um, really pissed her off, and I sort of want to get your point of view on it. Oh. He was saying the show, he said that, this is it, um, from Vanity Fair, um, the fans of Sherlock make doing the show less fun. Huh. I he can said, uh, sort of see that. Especially with how much more connected fans are to the movie stars with the online and Twitter and, and all this, and blogs and everything. And they used to be. He says, being in the show, it's a mini Beatles thing. Uh, mini Beatles thing. People's expectations, some of it's not fun anymore. It's not a thing to be enjoy. It's a thing of, you better fucking do this, otherwise you're a cunt. That's not fun anymore. Mmm. Yeah. And another point he makes, which I think is really fair, uh, Sherlock was notably high quality from the beginning, and when you start that high, it's hard to maintain it. Yeah, there's, there are some situations where you have nowhere to go but down. And I think, it certainly as the series has gone on, it has not been adapting Sherlock Holmes stories for modern day. It's more of original stuff, uh, which is fine. There's a big history of doing that. But um, I, if I was to recommend our viewers watch an episode of Sherlock, I would. my favorite one actually has been the Christmas special they did in 2016 that took place in Victorian England. Oh, yeah, where they, they made the bold choice of, of setting Sherlock Holmes in the time and place that Arthur Conan Doyle originally intended. Yes. It's uh, it's quite well done. I really liked it, and I'm a sucker for that period setting. So I guess I'm a bit of a Sherlock Holmes purist. Um, what's something you've been watching, Thresher? So, uh, we mentioned it earlier in this episode, but I watched the uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode for Kitten with a Whip, starring Anne Margaret. It was this a comedy, I take it? No, no, it wasn't. This was oh. this was meant to be her like big dramatic breakout role after having been in uh, Viva Las Vegas and Bye Bye Birdie. Um, but it is so overwrought that it really does play like a, a really campy uh, exploitation film, despite the presence of other actors such as John Forsyth and uh, noted comedian Doodles Weaver. Hmm. 
but it makes for a good episode of MST3K. Like they, I, I, some of their best episodes are when they are riffing on an overwrought drama. So you know, it's about this uh, guy. Uh, David Stratton, played by John Forsyth, and his wife has gone out of town for the weekend, and uh, he encounters this drifter, played by uh, Anne Margaret, and like, basically like, you know, oh, you're in the rain, you need some clean clothes, I'll give you some clean clothes my wife is gonna get rid of, but she ends up forcing her way into the house, and like, kind of taking over his life, and like anytime he's like, "Look, you need to get out of the, get out of my house." She's like, "Oh, but lover, I can incriminate you so horribly. Your reputation will be ruined. I'm Anne Margaret," and that's kind of how she acts in this film. Her performance is so overwrought, hmm. and it all like comes to this unbelievable head where he ends up being uh, extorted to the point where he drives uh, Anne Margaret and her entire gang of juvenile delinquents over the border into Las Vegas to escape a murder or not Las Vegas, into Mexico to escape a murder charge only to find his wife and all of their friends on vacation in that exact same town in Mexico Mm. so yeah it's also reliant on a number of improbable coincidences and if the movie has a moral, the moral seems to be ain't women crazy yeah, it's an all too common theme. Um, but hey, Doodles Weaver. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, you know. So I, before we get into our, what do we call the segment where we do the scene? I, I don't know. I guess we could just, if we want to be lame, sequel scenes. Uh, I don't know. I guess we really should settle on a name for this segment. I guess let's call it sequel scenes because that's easy and lame. My two favorite things. Um, <laughs> Before we do that, um, so I have picked out what we're going to do next week. Oh, nice. Or, or next movie series we're going to cover. It's a trilogy. It's all available to stream on Netflix in the U.S. It is Cube. Oh. Cube, Cube 2, and Cube 0. It is about time. I've never seen any of the Cube movies. I've always met two, and then I always pick something else on the shelf. I, th- I think we have talked about doing this series going all the way back to the first year of Sequel Cast 1. I think you're right, because it is one of those, it's a good premise, it's, um, you know, I, I was just looking at the directors of the films, the director of the uh, the first one, Vincenzo Natale, has gone on to make, um, not a super successful career, but he's been doing really, really good, he did a really good science fiction film called Splice, mm-hmm. with Adrian Brody, did you see that one? Or... Uh, regrettably, I have not, no. Okay. And, uh, what are we doing? So anyway, I mean, I, I'm excited to, uh... Oh, and he directed an episode of American Gods, which I thought was a pretty good series. Um, so very, very good. I think, uh... That'll we'll look at next. Um, so let's do our sequel scene. Alright, um... May I play the Great Gazoo? Sure. And uh, how about I'll do Barney and Fred? Cool. Okay. So this is a scene where Gazoo is meeting Barney and Fred for the first time from Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas. He's just been released from his space capsule. Yeah. Yeah. I come from a planet too far for you to fathom and a civilization too advanced for you to comprehend. Wait a minute, Fred. I bet we get wishes. Pardon? Yeah, we let you out of the fancy bottle and know we get wishes, right? 
Yeah, Bonnie's right. Let's get it started. Where do we have to rub? Nah, I'm not some sort of friendly cartoon genie. And that is not a bottle, it's a spacecraft. I am a highly evolved alien species. I don't do funny voices, I don't sing catchy songs, and I do not possess a magic carpet for your big bloated behinds to float upon. I'm here to observe your species mating rituals. Okay, dum-dums? I'm not a dum-dum, you green-blooded Vulcan. Okay, that did not sound like Fred either. Highly illogical. That's what we need to do. We need to we need to read a scene from Star Trek as Flintstones characters. Bonnie, it's the Klingons. I'm firing up the photon torpedoes, Fred. <laughs> Khan. Yeah, that works in the voice. Khan, my pebbles. Oh my God, we totally need to do that. We need to do the fruity pebbles rap commercial, but with Khan and Shatner. <laughs> Not not Kirk, but Shatner. Bedrock oh. green, purple, orange, lime, and red. But to get the fruity taste, I've got to trick Kirk. Fruit Rooney. To get that fruity taste, you gotta catch Kirk. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. That's um, a wrap. Yeah. Corinthian leather. Um. Now, is this me Khan played by Benedict Cumberbatch or Khan played by, oh my gosh, by Ricardo Montalban? The ideas are endless. Or, I even forgot. Or Khan played by John Wayne. Or uh, Khan from The Jungle Book. Wait, that's Ka. Okay. Um, so, uh, you can um, follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And uh, so tune in uh, next week. We'll, we'll be starting our look at the Cube Trilogy. They're available to watch uh, streaming on Netflix in the U.S. if you want to watch along with us. So uh, for Sequelcast 2, uh, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. I'm here to observe human mating rituals, so uh, get to it. Okay, Bon. I'm going to go uh, Lucy Matusi and Goosey Moosey. What, what the... What does any of that mean? <laughs> I don't know what any of that means, Fred, but it sure sounds nice. Good God. So, so you need to write a spec script for your uh, Flintstones reboot. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Um, you know, Marvel... Has it been Marvel or DC, DC. that's been doing these Hanna-Barbera comic strips? That are, like, yeah, postmodern? They... They, they, yeah, they did a really well-regarded postmodern take on the Flintstones. They, and they, they did it's real, it about the decline of the American dream. And they did a less well-regarded one of um, oh, what's the panther's name? Shit, the cat. Oh, Snagglepuss. Snagglepuss as a um, a Tennessee Williams type. Tennessee Williams, yeah. So. And with, with, speaking of that, uh, before we get off, is uh, Looney Tunes is doing more crossovers with DC, and so we are getting a Catwoman, Sylvester, and Tweety crossover. But Sylvester and, and the Tweety cover for that looks great. Realistically, yeah. Um, they're also doing some crossover with the uh, big orange furry monster thing. Oh, Gossamer. 
Gossamer's getting a crossover. And they did one last year that was Elmer Fudd and Batman. Yeah, that's a str- that's a strange pairing. They did Batman and Ninja Turtles a few years ago. I think out of you know all those weird crossovers, the one that makes the most sense was Batman versus Predator. Because <laughs> they're both detectives, they both have gadgets. Like you can do a lot there. The, yes, the Predator is a detective. He's known <laughs> for all well, the crimes that he solves. If you're gonna make stupid crossovers, I think Batman and Predator makes more sense than Superman and Aliens. No, no, no I'm just imagining. I'm imagining Columbo with the Predator. Like, oh, okay. Just we one can... more thing, ma'am. Were, were you covered in mud at the time? That uh, makes a lot of sense. Yes. I don't know what a predator sounds like. I think he just shrieks. He shrieks, he does the little like, sort of cricket noise. And, well, there uh, is that, like, take it from uh, Predator 2. Yeah, so. uh, I'd rather forget that. Um, okay, and they're doing a new Predator, speaking of stuff, so. Aren't they always? No, it's actually it's coming out this summer, and um, it's set in the suburbs, which is really depressing. Well, it's the one environment they haven't done aside from under the sea, so why not? The Predator homeworld? Do that. Huh, okay. (laughs) Or Blade Runner. Cross it over with Blade Runner. Blade Runner... uh, You know, I think all we really need is a Blade Runner Speedy Gonzalez crossover. Cross them over with a Flash. There you go. They can team up. Yeah. Um, okay, it's a one of our weirdest tangents ever. Um, tune in next week for the Cube Trilogy. <laughs> what do you want the song to be? Oh, God. If, if, if we're not going to do Viva Rock Vegas... Oh, Lord. If we're not going to do Viva Rock Vegas and we haven't done the expository rap and we haven't done Bedrock Anthem, um, maybe Walk the Dinosaur. Noise. Well, then I'm ever heard.